I have said this before, but it bears repeating. The Bible is not against itself. Bible verses are not against Bible verses. The Bible interprets itself. There's a big difference. Bible verses aren't against itself. God doesn't speak out of two sides of His mouth. The Bible interprets itself. So we don't go to the Bible and say, well, this verse seems to be against this verse. Or this verse seems to be against this verse. The Bible is full of what's called paradoxes. Two things that are true. And the paradox is that we don't know how both of these things are true. And the Bible speaks clearly about several things. I'll give you one for instance. Jesus is fully God and He is fully man. He's fully God and He's fully man. That's a paradox. Because in our world, in our existence, our reason that we use every day declares to us something can be full of only one thing. If you're full of water, you can't be full of milk. It's full of water. It can't be full of two things. Full, full. So in our mind, we go, we think about it, we would go, okay, Jesus is either fully God or He's fully man. But the Bible is very clear that Jesus is fully God and He is fully man. And I can understand that He's fully God and fully man. I can't understand how. But the Bible is really clear. He's fully God and He's fully man. That's clear. So to say, well, no, it's unclear, would be to reject the biblical authority. To say, no, he's either this or he's either this, would be to say the Bible's against itself. But the Bible isn't against itself. The Bible interprets itself. And so we look at the biblical story, we look at the Bible verses, and we say, Jesus is fully God, he's fully man. I don't know how, but I don't have to. I'm laying down my so-called right to have to know everything. And I'm going to take up what God says, even if I don't fully understand. And so I think a lot of the dogma, a lot of the church difficulties over the year have been people who have said, no, he's either this or he's either this. And the Bible's going to say, no, he's fully God and he's fully man. It's a paradox. We don't know how. And I love biblical theology because the Bible is so much greater and superior to philosophy because it invites us into the bigness of God. It invites our mind into creatively repenting for demanding to know. It invites our mind to take up mystery and to stand in it and to look and see all of its care, all of its curves and corners and all of the adjectives used to describe God in the Bible. We step into this mystery and we just stand in awe and we stand in wonder. There was a great philosopher and theologian. Years ago, he said, a man or a woman without a paradox is bored because they know everything. I just got it, got it all figured out. But biblical theology is so much greater than that because the Bible invites us into this way of just having to admit, God, your ways truly are. They're better than my ways. They're greater. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I have limitations. God, you don't. I can't understand. But by your grace, I'm going to understand that I can't understand. And I'm not going to demand from you before I believe you that I understand. Paradox. So we never ignore what God says because it doesn't sound right in light of something else God says. We take it all up. And if it makes us sound contradictory, if it makes us sound a little bit confusing, that's okay. God is big enough to handle those sorts of things. We just agree with God. 
God is right always, not just sometimes. And it regularly needs to be repeated. As you're studying your Bible, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, you're going to come across Bible verses that if you're just intellectually honest, the Holy Spirit is going to bring something up inside of you. How is that right? In light of this. And you're going to wrestle inside. Hmm, I don't like that. Why don't I like that? It's plain, it's clear, I don't understand, but why is it that it just feels wrong? And the point of biblical study isn't to make the Bible comfortable for me, or make the Bible comfortable for you, but it's to come to the Scriptures and just say, God, will you mold me? Will you shape my mind? Will you shape my heart? Will you make me willing to admit that your ways and thoughts are higher than my ways and thoughts? This morning, we're going to be challenged to do this with this particular passage in John chapter 12. Look with me at John chapter 12, verse 36b, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 50, and just read along with me. When Jesus said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe Him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into this world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world, come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken in my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment and what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray again. Father, I just need your help. Open my our eyes our ears. I know this word is not just for them. I sit in a pew with them underneath the authority of your word. Help me, shape me, mold me. Holy Spirit, lead as I try to preach as faithfully as I possibly can. Jesus is in your name we pray. Amen. Now, this is fascinating. Remember, just two weeks before, in this very chapter, we saw the Pharisees' declaration, the whole world has gone after them. On Monday, when he goes into the city, Sunday, when he goes Palm Sunday, goes into the city, there are many in the city who are laying down palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, this is the one for the Most High God, declaring him to be the Messiah. And now, after he began to discourse with them and talk about his death, there is a change in the city, and we find in verse, let me turn the page, I'm on the wrong page here, we find in verse 36b, when he said these things, he departed, they left, and in verse 37, then he had, though he had done so many signs, they still did not believe in him. They still did not believe. There's a turn in the city of Jerusalem, and the people were not believing Jesus. 
even though he had done all these signs, the Jewish people corporately together had denied that Jesus was the Messiah. Let's get a reminder of what signs Jesus did. In John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. Moving through the Gospel of John, the first 11 chapters, Jesus then healed the royal official's son. In chapter 8, He healed a paralytic by the pool of Bethsaida. He, in chapter 6, He fed 5,000 people. 5,000 people. And that's just men, so when you talk about women and children, you're talking about anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people. Jesus walked on water. In John chapter 9, He healed the man born blind. The city was in awe. In chapter 11, He raised Lazarus from the dead. And John concludes, at the end of this letter, He concludes that the books in all of the world, in every library, if you were to write every minute of every day of Jesus' life, from His perfect works done even in His thought life, the world's books could not hold all that Jesus did in these 33 years. But these signs are recorded that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, they would have life in His name. And even though Jesus did all of this in front of them, even though the story of Lazarus had begun to spread, and people initially thought, oh my goodness, He is the Messiah, when Jesus started talking about His death, the city turned on Him. And even though all these signs were in front of them, even though Jesus did what the Lord commanded him to do, what his heavenly Father commanded him to do, and he did all these signs, they looked at all the signs, and they assessed this Jesus based on his teaching and his talking about his death, and they did not believe him. They did not believe he is who he says he is. He was who he says he was. The Jews willingly, the city of Jerusalem, willingly rejected Jesus on their own will. They did not believe Him. And their disbelief hanged on their own heads. Hung on their own heads. They were responsible to look to Jesus to see the signs. And they should have recognized them. But they didn't. They suppressed, pushed down the truth. And they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. It goes on. Look at verse 38. It says, So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, this is from Psalm 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a rhetorical question because in Isaiah 53, we find out that no one had believed. That Isaiah's message to God's people 600 years before this account right here had fallen on deaf ears as well. The history of Israel was a history of judges and prophets and kings People speaking God's word to them. And they do okay for a little bit. But as soon as the prophet dies, as soon as the king dies, as soon as the judge dies, what happens? Israel rebels and they follow foreign gods. They reject God. In the time of Isaiah, he was prophesying. He was prophesying to deaf ears. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, most of the prophets in the Old Testament, if they were pastors today present day, they would be labeled as horrific failures because nobody listened to them. They did what God commanded them to do and they all ended up in pits or dying or bad. <coughs> Isaiah preached to God's people as God's prophet and they took cotton balls, shoved them in their ears, said, eh, we don't want to hear you. They didn't listen. 
They rebel. Who has heard the rhetorical question? The answer to this question is nobody. Nobody has listened. And what we see in Jerusalem in Jesus' day is just like that. Nobody is listening to Jesus. They did for a little bit. They kind of turned their ears and listened, kind of leaned in a little bit. But as soon as Jesus starts talking about his death, and as soon as they label him the wrong kind of Messiah, they shut down. And they disbelieved just like they did in the days of the prophets. And so God did something in them, in his purposes, that we have to simply trust. Look at verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. After the people willingly rejected Jesus, after they said, no, you're not the Messiah, God is said to have done something here. And Isaiah chapter 6 is quoted. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Apostle Paul all quote from Isaiah chapter 6. They all use this passage from Isaiah chapter 6 for something. Here we're told that after the people had rejected Jesus, God did something to the people in Jerusalem. They didn't believe, so what does God do? Well, He ensures that Israel would not believe. God did something, and then the judgment based on what He did is that they now could not believe. Time was up in Jerusalem. They could not believe. They were unable to believe because God had done something. It was impossible now. Too late. Time done. God is said to have blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their heart. Now this is, uh, this is interesting. God hardened their heart. It just says it. There's no interpretation required. It's just plain before us. God hardened their heart. And He blinded their eyes, the people in Israel, in Jerusalem. And since God did that, it's right. He didn't do anything wrong by doing that. If, it does, if it's uncomfortable for us to hear that, you know, we've kind of wrestled through, I'm sure, at your Bible study, God hardening Pharaoh's heart and wrestling with that. Seven times Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Seven times God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And the confusion that kind of comes with that. But it's plain and it's clear before us. God hardened their heart, blinded their eyes. Um, if we don't, if that doesn't feel right, here's, here's the reality of, of biblical truth. Biblical truth is not determined by what we feel. We have to lay down our right sometimes, or like I said in the beginning, our so-called right. We have to lay down the demand we put upon God to understand everything. We don't have to understand everything. Because here in this passage, it's fascinating. The people rejected Jesus and hardened their heart, and God hardened their heart. Well, which is it? Was it God that hardened their heart? Yes. Was it the people that hardened their heart first? Yes, both are true. Absolutely, it's just clear in front of us. They could not believe. It was impossible for them to 
believe. God did this so that they would not see and understand and turn to Him. It was their choice. They rejected this Jesus. Now, I want you to know this, and this is just true. God is free to do what He wants to do. And what God does is right. His judgments are perfect. His ways are holy and good. And God is free to harden and open human hearts. It's just in the scriptures. It's clear. It doesn't mean that he's bad. It doesn't mean that he's wrong. Here's the deal. God has never hardened an already non-hard heart. All human hearts are already hard and cold to the truth. Okay? That's a, a truth before us. God doesn't have to harden anyone's heart for them to reject him and walk away. But it is clear in the scriptures that God opens and can close hearts. And in this passage, we're told in Jerusalem that after the rejection, God solidified this and he hardened their hearts so that nothing else would happen in Jerusalem. That Christ would walk to Geth through Gethsemane and to Calvary. He hardened the heart of Israel. The human heart is not more powerful than God. Let me just say that again. The human heart is not more powerful than God. And that is really good news because I want you to hear me. There's somebody in here who is the most hard-hearted sinner before you're sitting in these pews. There's somebody in here that other people thought before you became a Christian, there's no way that that person would ever follow Jesus. But God's more powerful than your hard heart. And just like he did with Lydia, that little Lydia this morning, she's some, somewhere, that uh, Lydia, just like God did with Lydia in Macedonia, he opened her heart so she could hear and understand what was being preached by the apostles. And she believed. And if you think there are people in this world whose hearts are too hard or they're too far gone, God has power over the human heart and he can open up a human heart. He has power over hearts of humans. Humans are not more powerful than God. Human will is not. Human hearts are not. God is free to do what He pleases. And that is a good, good thing. God blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. But notice, even when God hardens the heart, in verse 43, what we hear, in verse 43, it says this, For they, the people, the people who were hardened love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What they wanted more than glory and honor from God, what they wanted more to be in the presence of God, even though God had hardened the hearts of the people in that city, what they wanted, they, what they wanted was glory from people and they didn't want glory from God. And that's on them. People are responsible even though God can do things in and through the human heart. And it's just like Isaiah chapter 6. So, okay, in Isaiah chapter 6, we have dealt with, and you can go ahead and turn there if you would like, what, what's happening here in Jerusalem before Jesus walks during Passion Week toward Calvary has happened before. It says that Isaiah spoke of Jesus. This is fascinating. Verse 41 of chapter 6. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is amazing. Okay? 
John is saying that Isaiah, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6, what Isaiah is saying that he, what John is saying is that Isaiah saw Jesus. Jesus, this pre-incarnate Jesus, is sitting on the throne in Isaiah 6. And what's happening in Jerusalem right now, early Passion Week, happened is just like what happened in the past with God's people. And so Isaiah 6 has some insights for us. It has some helps there for us. In the first five chapters in Isaiah, we find that God's people had rebelled over and over again. In chapter 1, we hear of the wickedness of Judah. Wickedness of the tribe of Judah. We hear about Jerusalem, the unfaithful city in chapter 1. We also hear about the day of the Lord's judgment in chapter 2. Chapter 3, judgment is, is proclaimed on Judah and Jerusalem because of their sin. It goes on, we hear about the vineyard of the Lord being destroyed and a woe, a woe to the wicked in chapter 5. And then we get to chapter 6. And Isaiah gets a vision of Jesus, the prophet of God, looking out at this rebellious Israel who had rebelled and had not listened to his words. And he gets this vision and it changes for him everything. Verse 1 in chapter 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood a seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice who called him. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the, from the tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And I and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And this is typically where Isaiah chapter 6 stops. Isaiah sees a vision of Jesus. And Jesus takes away his guilt. And then the voice of Jesus cries out, Who will I send? And Isaiah is sitting there and he's saying, I'll go. I'll inconvenience myself. I'll continue to speak your word even if they don't hear. I'll go to your people. Send me. I would be thinking that if I'm being sent by Jesus that this is going to be revival. Time is now. The city will finally hear. All of what felt was like vain efforts in the past. Finally, this work, this ground that's been tilled will finally bear fruit. Even though they had disbelieved, finally, revival is going to come. Repentance is going to be granted. But just like what happened in Jerusalem, and when Jesus, 600 years later, hear this, the precursor. Here's what Jesus tells him. He said, Go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not receive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears 
heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, lest they hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lay in waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is with desolate waste. And the Lord removes his people far away, and forsaken places are, are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's fell. The holy seed is its stump. Now, this is not a call that many people would want. Certainly most pastors don't want this. Uh, go and preach a message. And preach in such a way to make sure they do not turn. Isaiah, for you to be obedient to me is you are going to go and you're going to preach and it's going to fall on deaf ears. That city will not hear. Do as many people want to sign up now? Send me, Lord! Here's my ministry. I'm going to preach and they're going to hate me for it. Israel rebelled. They were being hardened. It's the same thing. Why? Why do we see this pattern through the Old Testament? Why in Isaiah 6 are the people hardened? Why in Jerusalem are they hardened during Passion Week? Well, there is a reason. I want you to look real quickly at the book of Acts. And I want you to look at chapter 28. Chapter 28, verses 25 to 28. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through, the, through Isaiah the prophet. So here's Genesis, or Isaiah 6. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, and they, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. Verse 28, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, let it be known to you this day, salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. The mission of God has always been to, be, to go beyond Israel. It's always been to reach into the Gentiles and to gather a bride for Christ from every tribe, tongue, nation. Paul concluded, we'll go to the Gentiles then. We'll go to the Gentiles. And I want you to see this flow because Jesus, after He says this, after He says this in John 12, you can flip back there, Jesus begins to speak of the world. And He moves beyond Jerusalem and He starts talking about Gentiles. He starts talking instead of Israel. He starts saying things like whoever and anyone and the world. He moves out from Jerusalem and He turns in the same way that Paul concluded Jesus taught beforehand, and I want you to see this in verse 44. And Jesus cried out, said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees 
me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come to the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I judge them not. I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has me judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has given me, has given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. In verse 44, Jesus cries out, Whoever believes in me believes the Father. Now, this word whoever is all through the Gospel of John. And so they shouldn't be shocked by this. But when Jesus begins to talk about the world, He's revealing, again, this mission goes beyond this people. It goes out and He's gathering for Himself people from all corners of the earth, from every single tribe. To this day, there are tribes that have never heard the Gospel. And by the time of Christ's return, there will be people in those tribes who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. The Gentiles will have believed. Verse 44 says, whoever believes in me. Verse 45, whoever sees me, sees the Father. Verse 46, whoever believes will not stay in darkness. Verse 47, I came to save the world, not just Israel. To be sure, God has saved people from within Israel. And they are part of the world. That needs to be stated. There are people within the, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel who have been redeemed and purchased by Jesus on the cross. And they have been repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. But this message goes forth and it continues to go forth. In verse 50, we see as this narrative concludes to Jerusalem, this is what the Father wants. The plan of God from the Old Testament to the New is to gather this bride. A bride for a son from every tribe and nation and tongue. Not just Israel. The work of Jesus and the message of Jesus is a global message. Not to be secured within city walls. The message of Jesus was to go forth in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He tells his disciples that they're going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes, power will come upon them, and they would go beyond Jerusalem. And then after Stephen's persecution and the heavy persecution in chapter 7, that begins to happen. They have to leave. There's a dispersion. People of God are persecuted. And they go out and they have to leave Jerusalem. They go into Judea, Samaria, and the end of of the earth. And then all of a sudden, a couple thousand years later, that gospel message made it into our homes. And into your heart. And into your life. This is a global message. So the hardening that had come upon Israel, God's hardening of their hearts, the callousness that they had there before, and then His hardening of their heart was for a purpose, an eternal purpose that started before the foundation of the world and continues throughout all eternity. And it challenges us this morning. When Jesus turns to the world and says that the world may be saved, and He commissions us in, action, in, in, in Matthew chapter 28, we should understand that if the message of Christ has come to us, if our hearts have not been hardened by ourselves and by the Lord, but God has opened our hearts 
and we have come by His grace to the throne of mercy and found it, then it is not simply for us to just enjoy. Yes, we are to enjoy the grace of God. Yes, we are to think about deeply what Christ has done for us. But gratitude, properly understood, leads to mission. It leads to mission. It leads to us turning to the world also. And not just talking to ourselves and not just enjoying the grace of God. But to enjoy the grace of God is to share the grace of God. It's not to rebel against God's grace by just enjoying it yourself, which is rebellion. Spurgeon said about God's people who are recipients of grace, the Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. If you don't share that same concern for the world that Jesus has, there's something missing. Let me just ask you a question. Do you have concern about lost people? Seriously. Do you believe there are people that you work with, people in your family? Do you believe that judgment is coming to them apart from Christ? I think many times we don't share the gospel because we believe God is not big enough to change our hearts. We think they're too far. Or that we will annoy them. Or it's going to be awkward. I don't want to tell about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. I don't want to tell them that they've sinned against God. It made me feel uncomfortable. So? God's grace is there for those who are not evangelistic. It's there. But it's there for us to be evangelistic. You say, I've not told about somebody about Christ for 30 years. There's still no condemnation for you if you're in Christ. But something should happen. When you understand there's no condemnation for you in Christ, something should stir inside of you. You mean there's no condemnation even though I've never told anybody of Christ in the last 30 years? There's no condemnation for me? No. I need to tell somebody about how great Jesus is then. The message of Christ has always been intended to go out. It's never intended to stop. The gates of hell don't stop this message. It went beyond Jerusalem. It went into Judea. It went into Samaria. It went to the end of the earth. And it continues to power forward. A simple way to talk to somebody about Jesus. Hey, do you have two minutes for me to tell you about Jesus? I know it might be kind of weird. But you just have two minutes. I just want to talk to you about Jesus. Tell them the difference between the message of global religion. It's really easy. Global religion says salvation is up to you. Christianity says that God saves sinners. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's not that hard. Jesus' message is different than any other message in the world. The message of global religion, you do it. The message of Christianity, it is finished. And so as we look at this, as Jesus turns from those who have been hardened, and as he turns and says, whoever would come to me, whoever would believe, we should say the same thing and say, if you'll have him, he'll have you. <coughs> if you'll come, if you'll repent, if you'll believe, you will have him and he will in no way cast you out. All the Father 
has given the Son will come to Him. And whoever comes to Him, He will in no way cast out. We see a glorious paradox in Jerusalem at the beginning of Passion Week. People harden their hearts and God hardened their hearts. And it's both. But we also see a glorious truth. This message was not just intended for first century Jerusalem. It was intended for Jared Sparks in 2000. It was in 1988 when I became a Christian. It was intended for me. It was for me. And if you're in here and you're in Christ, it was for you. And the God who can open and close hearts isn't scared of the most hard-hearted sinner in this world. So tell him, will you come to Jesus? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would bring conviction, uh, not condemnation, that you would bring conviction to us. I know there are many people in here who are scared to death to tell other people about Jesus. But God, I pray they would hear the fact, hear the truth, that there's no condemnation for those who, for those who lack evangelistic zeal. Let, let's just go back to that. I've not told anybody about Jesus. Jesus tells me the Great Commission is for me to go in the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And if you're a believer in this room and you've never told anybody about Jesus, if you're in Christ, hear me say this, there's no condemnation to you. But if you're in Christ, you have to know that the message that Jesus has is for the world. And it's not just intended to stop with you. The way God calls His sons and daughters to Himself is through the cross and through those who have been redeemed and purchased by the cross. So Father, help us to see. Give us spiritual eyes to see. And help us to trust that You can, like You did in Macedonia, in the same way You opened Lydia's heart, in the same way You opened our hearts, help us to believe that the world still is going to believe through You opening hearts. We thank you that you have the power to harden hearts and open hearts. God, we pray for people in our lives that don't know you, that they would know you. If anybody this morning would want to meet you this morning, open their hearts, and I pray they would come and receive you. Jesus is very well. Amen. We're going to sing.